Thank you. That um, that part from John the Baptist is one of my favorite lines in scripture, and I challenge you to use it just in a random situation when somebody perhaps aggravates you or cuts you off in traffic and you just yell, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? <laughs> just, they will have no idea what just happened. <laughs> Gotta love John. So I like to think of myself as uh, really good at interfaith work. Um, being a Christian, being open to other religions and working with and honoring other traditions. And I don't know, there was a point in my life where this was a point of pride for me and maybe um, that should have been a warning that uh, pride comes, you know, before bad things. Um, so when I got accepted into this interfaith um, fellowship of uh, clergy and scientists called uh, Sinai and Synapses based out of New York in a Jewish think tank. Um, I was super excited. I get this opportunity to rub shoulders with rabbis and imams and scientists and journalists and all this stuff. And it was going to be wonderful and great. And I was feeling good about myself. Um, somebody asked me while we were there in the large group with all the fellows what my tattoos meant because I have Hebrew on my wrist and then Greek on the other. And um, you know, for a very observant Jew, that would be kind of ironic because, you know, the book of Leviticus says not to get tattoos. And so to have a tattoo of Hebrew, um, if you are a certain subset of Jew, would be kind of doubly bad. But I, I explained to the group, um, you know, maybe 30 people in the room, that um, this one here comes from Psalm 33. It says, for he spoke and all things came into being. And this one is from Revelation 21, 5, that says, behold, I am making all things new. It's a reminder to me that the story of the Bible begins and ends with creation, not with destruction. That in between the two things is this kind of broken down creature that was a part of this creation, but that this is going to be a part of this creation as well. And I need that reminder that not everything is lost. And I was feeling kind of good about myself with this uh, you know, very spiritual description. When a, uh, a rabbi in the room spoke up and she, when I had said that the Bible begins and ends with creation, not destruction, she said, whose Bible? Because mine doesn't end that way. And I thought to myself in that moment, looking at this um, young rabbi, that uh, we were to either become best friends or worst enemies. Um, luckily, uh, Rachel Jackson has become one of my best friends um, <laughs> and has been such a gift to me as a Jewish person who takes her faith very seriously and also is the kind of person who doesn't have much of a filter. And that to me is such a blessing as a person who is actively trying to do the right thing. <laughs> And over time, she has helped me to see, as well as some of my other Jewish friends, that um, when I see the Bible as, as, um, as it's laid out in like my Christian Bibles, when I see the first part, the entire Hebrew canon, when I see that existing just to be Jesus' prologue, that's problematic. When all of the prophecies of the Hebrew Scriptures simply just point to the birth of Jesus, that's, pr 
problematic. When, when the stories of Exodus, of kings, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and Solomon and all of those, when those are just kind of like, you know, fun backstories that help you to understand the new ones, like reading the Silmarillion because you're really into Lord of the Rings and you want to get the old, old backstory, that's problematic. Because what that then does is it makes the Hebrew scriptures and the people who wrote it and love it and cherish it and still get a lot from it expendable. I mean, cherished, perhaps, and sentimental, perhaps, but no more so than your grandmother's china, which, you know, relics of a bygone era that sit in a box or a cabinet somewhere and you feel a warm attachment to, but if for some reason, like you discover that it's full of lead and you need to get rid of it, it might be sad, but it's expendable. And so this kind of what I mentioned before, supersessionism, that the Hebrew scriptures and the people of the Hebrew scriptures are a fun relic a bygone, uh, of a bygone time, is not only offensive, but dangerous. And this is why I wanted to unpack O Come, O Come, Emmanuel a little bit, because like I said, Isaiah is not imagining Jesus. He's not uh, predicting the coming of Jesus. He's predicting salvation in his own time. And this is just the way that God works, that God doesn't fulfill prophecy once. God fulfills it twice and three times and four times and five times. And each time, think of it like an ever-growing circle of magnitude, of more grace, of more forgiveness, of more surprise that we've now saved this small group, and now we've saved this small group, this, and now we've saved this bigger group and this bigger group, and eventually the entire world. That this prophetic imagination is one that continues to snowball. Jesus is a continuation of the prophetic stream, not its end. And maybe, just maybe, there's an end. There is an end to all of this prophecy. There is an end time and the end of the world and salvation and Jesus' return and everything is fine and well and good. And maybe Jesus very clearly tells us that nobody knows when that's coming or what it's going to look like, so don't worry about it. <laughs> just be prepared in any moment and live your lives in the today. Jesus very clearly says this. So we just keep looking forward to the next cycle of prophecy, the next cycle of oppression and redemption, of salvation from our current problems. What matters is how we live in the cycle now. And so this idea of supersessionism, that, that uh, Jesus was the end of prophecy, the, the fulfillment of all of the prophecies, and that the church is the new Israel, and Israel is a bygone thing. It's been really popular since the first century of the church. Really, the very first century. A lot of infighting between uh, the Jews and the Christians in the first century. And a part of that is maybe because of doctrinal reasons or, or whatnot, but there were a lot of sects of Judaism. Christianity was just another one of them. What really set them at odds with each other was that in the f about the first hundred years after Jesus' death and resurrection, 
it was a very bad time to be alive in the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire, which had expanded too fast into too many places and couldn't hold its empire together, couldn't properly gorge its uh, top 1% on all of the grain it was stealing from Egypt and the Middle East and all of that, was starting to crumble and there were rebellions in places and there were fires that were set in Rome and the emperors had to blame someone. And they couldn't possibly blame themselves or their generals or anything like that. And so they would blame small groups. So there's, in the first hundred years, various persecutions of the Jews and of the Christians in different times for different reasons. And so, as happens in these sorts of situations, um, instead of drawing together in solidarity against the empire, they grew in animosity against each other siding with the empire as if to say, oh, I'm not one of them. Don't persecute me, please. Oh, we Christians, we're not Jews. We're not even a little bit Jewish. Well, who are those people? And the Jews would then say, oh, those heretics, those aren't us. That's not us. Don't persecute us. And so through this evil empire ended up ripping apart these two siblings in faith. Do you know why I want to spend all of this time intentionally sitting with these ideas today? which seems like a strange time to do in the middle of Advent right before Christmas. Why it is so important for me right now that we are so incredibly intentional about the way, about knowing what we believe and how we communicate it. It's because casual supersessionism is the fertile soil in which violent anti-Semitism grows. It's easy for us when we see headlines and clips of Kanye proudly declaring that he's a Nazi and that Hitler had some great ideas, which is, you know, bad when Alex Jones has to try to temper you down. The man who said that Sandy Hook was a false flag operation, when that's too crazy for him. It's easy for us to sit back and go, bad, this guy, bad. That thing he said, bad. Nazis, bad. Hitler, bad. Okay. But where did that hatred come from within him, within the other people who marched in uh, Charlottesville shouting, Jews will not replace us? Where did that hatred come from? Where did those awful conspiracy theories develop? What is nurturing this 2,000-year-old festering hatred? I think it's us. I think it's casual anti-Semitism. It's thoughtless expressions, unexamined hymns, and refusal to properly condemn it when we see it. For example, let's say hypothetically there was a Christian author who published a book, and in that book suggested very strongly that um, the answer to our problems is to outlaw Judaism altogether, to forbid the teaching of it, to destroy all of the religious books, to burn down every synagogue, to force Jews out of Christian neighborhoods and have them move into their own neighborhoods where they can be properly watched. And if any of them protest this and try to, um, you know, fight back, it's okay to kill them because they had it coming and they are worse than pigs who wallow in the devil's feces. What do you think we would do with that Christian author? 
one would think we would rise up in, as one in the church and say, we will never uh, read this author's works. We will never lift up this author. You'd think we would condemn their hatred and make sure that their work was never taught in churches, but we don't do that because we love Martin Luther. Even though his book, entitled On the Jews and Their Lies, was basically the reason why Nazis could sleep at night, knowing that God was on their side. And for generations, Christians have heard passages like the one we read this morning with John the Baptist and cheered on as John tore down the religious elite while he said, oh, don't think for yourselves that I have Abraham as my father, then I'll be saved because God could draw up children of Abraham from these rocks. And we as Christians have read this passage and we've said, yeah, go team rocks. We're the rocks. We got called up and now we're sacred. We're God's people and they're not. Nah, 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 nah. And we still have radically missed the point of what John is saying here that we ourselves have then become not the rocks that are becoming sacred, but the Pharisees and Sadducees that have taken their chosenness and used it as a weapon against others. We have imagined that when, when God says that you are my children, that that means we are only children. That if we are receiving God's favor, then no one else can. We act like 10-year-old hall monitors who think that our reflective vest makes us better and more powerful than our peers. But being called, being set apart, being made a sacred people has nothing to do with your value or your worth. That's a different conversation. We can have another day. Being set apart is not like you, God saw you as like some special collector's edition human or, you know, the, this top-shelf vintage people that are put in uh, cases to be displayed to the whole world. No, you are set apart to be healers in the world. You are a sacred people with a sacred, solemn duty to help everyone else know that they are also sacred people. And the moment that you forget this and assume that your religion, your status, your skin color, your country sets you apart as better than everyone else, then the ax is already set at the root of the tree to bring us back to John. <laughs> so what does all this mean? Well, I think that it means that the billions of Jews born after Jesus' crucifixion are not cut off from God and have met the true God through their worship, through their study through their faith, through the nature of being who they are. It means that, once again, we are not the sole heirs of the divine. It means that we need to re-examine the impact of our language and the many ways our casual supersessionism has allowed for violent anti-Semitism. It means reaching out, perhaps, to Jewish friends and neighbors who are taking time to publicly call out the latest anti-Semitic rant by whatever celebrity or politician or whatever it may be. But I think it means above all else that we have a lot of hard work to do. 
that we've got 2,000 years of Christendom to dis, uh, dismantle, that we have a lot of work decentralizing ourselves from God's story of redemption, and we have a lot of work inviting our neighbors to see the sacred within themselves. <laughs> 